Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Laura Jost, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're going to talk about a new type of health insurance benefit. As the country searches for a new way to address costs of care, value-based insurance design, or VBID, is gaining traction as one way of encouraging the use of high-value services and discouraging the use of low-value services. VBID would give patients access to treatments and services with high clinical value at reduced or no cost sharing. Currently, health plans tend to value all treatments and services as equal in clinical value to all patients, even though this is not the reality. On March 14th, the University of Michigan's VBID Center hosted its annual VBID Summit with discussions on aligning around value, how public payers are adopting VBID principles, addressing the use of low-value care services, and creating a smarter, high-deductible health plan. Today, we spoke with three speakers from the summit. First up is Michelle Drozd of the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, known as Pharma. She sat on a panel discussing smarter, high-deductible health plans. One note before we start, this interview was recorded at the VBID Summit, which was held in the university stadium, known as the Big House. As such, there is some background noise, as well as music that had been playing through the stadium speakers. So value-based payment reform is a hot topic right now. When it comes to pharmaceuticals in the United States, they're very much in their infancy, these contracts, but why are they becoming more common now? So I think about this as two factors that are driving the push towards value-based contracting. One is that medicines are becoming increasingly complex and personalized. So you see biologic medicines coming to market, the new CAR-T therapies and gene therapies that were recently approved, and then other narrowly targeted therapies. And those all lead to questions about which medicine is right for which patients. On the other side, you have payers which are increasingly consolidated, and they're putting increasing pressure on drug prices. Um, We used to always say that 70% of the market was controlled by three PBMs, but now that we have um, CVS um, and ESI consolidating with large payers, I'm not sure exactly how that statistic is gonna change, but I think this general pressure of increased payer consolidation on drug prices um, works with the increasing personalization of medicine in a way that will lead to more demands for these manufacturers to prove that their medicine is right for that individual patient. And what are pharma companies usually looking to get out of these contracts, and does it differ from why payers want to set up the contracts? Yeah, so there was a recent study in the Journal of Managed Care Pharmacy that touched on this, and they found that um, payers tend to prioritize costs. Um, So they looked at things like increased discounts or rebates and ability to reduce financial risk as priorities from the contracts. On the other side, manufacturers are doing it because they want increased access. So um, you see manufacturers thinking that they're going to get a larger number of patients receiving their medicine or improved reimbursement because they're going to prove that their medicine does better than anticipated under the contract. Um, So in many ways, it's the same as traditional contracting, but there's a new element of sort of risk sharing that is different in these contracts. Mm -hmm. And Pharma recently released this issue brief on value-based contracts. So what were some of those key takeaways? So the big takeaways from that issue brief, it was a brief called The Value of Value-Based Contracts. And what we talked about was how um, patients are benefiting from value-based contracts. So we did an analysis, um, we worked with Avalar Health on the analysis to 
show, look at publicly announced value-based contracts where a manufacturer and a payer had announced that they were entering into an agreement for a specific medicine. Avalier pulled data for silver level exchange plans and they looked at the formulary placement for these medicines. And they compared the medicines with the value-based contract in, in payers with the announced value-based contract to payers without an announced value-based contract for the same medicine. And what they found is that the payers that had a publicly announced value-based contracting had co-pays that were 28% lower than those without a publicly announced contract. Um, so I think, I'm not sure if 28% is really you know, the effect size, but it's at least suggestive that there's some cost saving to patients from these contracts. We looked at also other types of benefits to value-based contracts, including potential offsets from reduced medical costs. And we estimated that if you were able to reduce the cost of diabetes care in the U.S. by only 5%, you could save $12 billion a year. And I think that's relevant because diabetes is an area where there's been a lot of interest in value-based contracts and, and there's hope that value-based contracting can really improve the management of diabetes or support better management of diabetes. And what are the barriers in place that are limiting the number of innovative payment models? Yeah, so this is something pharma works on a lot. Um, there's two different categories of barriers. So there's legal regulatory barriers and operational barriers. On the legal regulatory barriers, one of the big questions companies have is how to account for these value-based contracts under price reporting metrics. So Medicaid best price is one that comes up a lot. Um, companies both have questions about how to report performance-based contracts in particular under Medicaid best price, where they might not know the, the final price for the medicine until well into the future. Um, but they also have concerns about sometimes have concerns about the implications of a performance-based contract for their best price and whether it could set a new best price for medicine for a medicine. Um, a second area where manufacturers have concerns is around the anti-kickback statute and just questions about whether value-based contracts or certain value-based contracts are protected under the anti-kickback statute. Um, it's a broad law. There are uh, certain safe harbors that may apply to value-based contracts, but I think manufacturers would feel more comfortable with a specific safe harbor for value-based contracts. And then the third legal regulatory barrier we look at is manufacturer communications rules. And um, the, there's a lot of interest in greater clarity from the FDA around how they would like to see manufacturers communicate, for example, healthcare economic information. And I think lacking that, sometimes companies feel inhibited in their ability to communicate information that's important for getting to the contract, information about like the cost effectiveness of the medicine or um, questions that payers may have. The operational side is more about measurement challenges. Um, and so that can include things like measuring health outcomes is a challenge. Um, payers and manufacturers often don't have outcomes data. They're limited to things like claims data or data where there's already clinical data available for other performance measurement, which I think is why you see things like hemoglobin A1C and cholesterol being some of the leading value-based contracts. Those are things we've been measuring for quality measurement in other areas for a long time. Um, so I think those are the big barriers. Great. And then, um, so what is next as more expensive therapies like gene therapies or other things are coming to market? Um, are we going to be looking at new, different 
like financing mechanisms? So I can only say what I've heard here or what I've read in the press, which is that there's what I, my understanding is there's three medicines that have come to market so far that are either cellular or regenerative therapies. Um, of these, two have a performance-based contract as part of their arrangement or have announced that they're entering into performance-based payment. And one is doing traditional contracting. And then one of the two that was interested in performance-based payment is also exploring like pay over time. So I think it's early and we don't really know. And I think because we focus so much on the barriers, the other thing that I like to note with regards to the gene therapies is that the same legal policy barriers that we've mentioned generally on value-based contracting, the gene therapy companies have also mentioned as areas of interest for continued regulatory relief. One strategy to control drug spending has been shifting costs uh, more onto patients. So how can value-based insurance design help with the cost of care and insurance adherence? So from our perspective, shifting cost to patients is not the right solution for managing concerns about cost of care and drug costs. Um, Payers have a lot of tools at their disposal to manage drug costs. Um, They use things like formulary tiering. They may not cover a medicine. They may implement prior authorization or step therapies, different types of utilization management. They can also use provider incentives like clinical pathways, risk sharing arrangements such as ACOs or bundled payments. So there's a lot of tools at the payer's disposal that we think um, are more appropriate for them to manage drug costs and have been more effective. Um, We also realize there's challenges with any of these tools for managing drug costs. So we really want to make sure that they're implemented in a way that um, ensures that patients really can continue to access the right medicine for them. So if there's utilization management in place or or a drug is not on the payer's formulary, we like to see a strong exceptions and appeals process so the patient can get the medicine. And so one of the things that you had mentioned during your panel um, earlier today was a smoothing of the deductible, which is not something I've heard before. And I was wondering if you could just kind of explain what that is. Yeah. So the concern about the deductible is partially an affordability problem for patients. So we saw data from the Federal Reserve that said that um, 44% of patients cannot afford an unexpected expense of $400 without taking out a loan or selling something. And I think when you look at the size of the deductibles, that really raises affordability questions for anybody who is receiving a service or a medicine that is higher than the cost of the deductible and has to pay that whole deductible at one time. So the idea here was, is there a way for the deductible to be spread over the year so that manufacturers are able, or so that patients are able to pay for the medicine or pay for the deductible one um, twelfth at each month, perhaps. Um, I think I'm not sure what the policy recommendation is quite there yet, but I think it's an idea that we're quite interested in and think maybe would help address patient affordability while allowing health plans to continue using high deductibles. So those were all the questions I had. If there's anything that you wanted to add, I think the one last point I'd like to make, and this is something we said in the issue brief we put out recently, is that it's important that we not judge the potential benefits of value-based contracting by looking at today's contracts. And this is really something I think about when I think about the legal and operational barriers, especially the legal barriers, right? So there are people who tend to look at current value-based contracts and want to evaluate their potential performance, but we view those as very constrained based on the existing rules. And so we think that if you were to modernize the rules, you could get more different and larger scale contracts, and that would be a very different world. And so just that's a point to leave the discussion on. Great. Thank you very much for your time today. <laughs> Thank you.
Paul Fronston of the Employee Benefit Research Institute also sat on the panel with Michelle. He has been studying benefits and plan design for almost 20 years. Paul, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure to be with you. So let's start with some basic information. What impact can a plan's deductible have as healthcare costs continue to rise? Well, the impact on a deductible is that it's going to reduce use of healthcare services. If you, if you raise the deductible, people will use fewer services, and that translates into lower premiums. It's a pretty simple equation, and that's one of the things that makes uh, it attractive to employers. And health savings accounts had been a popular tool to pair with high deductible health plans, but EBRI recently found that there's been slower enrollment growth in HSAs. What did you attribute this slower growth to? Yeah, so actually what we looked at was the number of people in HSA-eligible health plans or high-deductible plans paired with an HSA and how that's been changing over time. We looked at our own survey and four other surveys, and it was a combination of surveys that interviewed individuals, interviewed employers, and collected information from insurance companies. So they're, you know, the five surveys are coming at this, trying to get at the size of this market differently. And what we found was in the last couple of years, regardless of which survey you look at, uh, the, the number of people in these plans uh, may have peaked. Right. And, and but so it led us to question, has has enrollment stalled? And, and our conclusion actually is that enrollment hasn't stalled. What seems to be going on is that these surveys are all guilty, including my own. They're all guilty of not capturing uh, the phenomenon of people who disenroll from these plans in any given year. So we looked at some other information to try and come up with how you know, how many people are, are leaving these plans and we're finding a disenrollment of anywhere between eight and 10%. So as you have, you have new people going into HSA plans. Uh, so we can't conclude that enrollment is stalled. There, there's definitely new people going in, but there are people coming out as a real, as a result, the size of the market or the market share uh, seems to have stalled, which is different than, than enrollment in these plans stalling. Mm-hmm. And do we know why there is an increase in disenrollment? Is this employers using it less and promoting it less, or is this employees just deciding that they aren't interested? I'm not sure. I would I would say that there's an increase in disenrollment, uh, but the the fact is these plans are still not that they're relatively new. They've been around since 2004, but for most people, they're relatively new uh, because. You know, most people haven't been in them that long. So I think what we're seeing, we're finally starting to see this enrollment that we never really saw before because there weren't that many people in the plans to begin with. And high deductible health plans, they often keep costs down by discouraging patients from using um, high value as well as low value services. How can they be designed smarter to encourage the use of high value services while discouraging the use of those low value services? Right. Well, you've got two kinds of high deductible plans. You've got those that are paired with an HSA eligible health plan, and you've got those that are paired uh, that that aren't paired with an HSA eligible health plan. They might be paired with a health reimbursement arrangement, or or not paired with any type of account. So you have to look at those those two differently. In the in the HSA eligible health plan world, those plans have very strict requirements regarding what can be excluded from the deductible, and only certain services that are considered preventive services 
can be excluded from the deductibles. So it's very difficult to apply VBID principles to an HSA-eligible health plan because of statutory requirements. On every other high-deductible plan, uh, whether they're paired with a health reimbursement arrangement or not, if you know, maybe they're just straightforward high deductible with no type of account attached to it, employers can do anything they want. They can, and insurance companies too, they can design the plan to cover, to subject plan participants to uh, any service inside or outside of the deductible. So, so for instance, they could easily carve out uh, any type of service that would lend itself to, to a VBID uh, principle and not subject that service to the deductible and maybe even not subject it to any cost sharing whatsoever. The flexibility is there. And I think I know what your answer might be on this one, but what has public opinion been on high deductible health plans? Well, it, it's interesting. It's mixed and it depends upon how you look at it. Uh, keep in mind that it's not like public opinion about health insurance is that high to begin with, whether it's a high <laughs> deductible or not. Uh, and But what we find is that uh, it, it seems like satisfaction with non-high deductible health plans is definitely higher than it is for high deductible health plans. But the satisfaction levels with high deductible plans uh, seems to be catching up. And on various aspects of the plan, it's just as high. So if, when you ask people if they're satisfied with their choice of doctors, it doesn't matter which plan you're in. That's relatively high. Uh, but when you ask people if they're satisfied with their out-of-pocket spending, that's where you see a tremendous difference in satisfaction. And when you ask about the overall satisfaction with the plan, uh, that's where you see satisfaction with uh, the high deductible plans. Uh, looks like it's trending upward and potentially catching up with the non-high deductible health plans. And I think what's going on there is, you know, I mean, high deductible plans are, are good for a lot of people. Half the population in any given year uses no health care or next to no health care. Why wouldn't they be satisfied with a high deductible plan, especially if they're saving money on the premium? So, uh, you know, you've got this 80-20 rule, 20% of the population accounts for 8% of the spending, and, and they're the ones most likely to be dissatisfied with the plan, probably driven by the out-of-pocket costs. Uh, so for everybody else, their satisfaction levels may increase over time. Uh, you know, they may be turned off at first by a high deductible, but once they realize it's not really affecting them a whole lot because they don't use a whole lot of health care, their satisfaction levels tend to rise. And last week you spoke at the University of Michigan's VBID Summit. What is public opinion on VBID concepts, or is this something that's still mostly known and understood only by people in the industry? Well, I think that's true. It's mostly known by, especially the term is mostly known by people in, this, in the industry. But you know, for many years uh, with managed care in the, in the 90s, people got used to low cost sharing, not necessarily because of EBID, uh, but because that's the way plans were designed. Uh, so I think you know, there's, there's, you know, if we explain this to people, they would be generally receptive to it. When, when you know, employers are certainly receptive to the idea and uh, you don't see a tremendously high adoption rate. I think they're still trying to figure out how to make it work. Uh, one of the issues with with health benefits is we still seem to have this one size uh, fits all mentality when it comes to benefits, and and you, we're starting to see examples of different benefit structures for different healthcare services or different conditions. Right, we've certainly seen VBIT applied to diabetes, and you've seen other plan designs. Uh, carved out for other services, like whether it's centers of excellence or 
uh, reference pricing for knee and hip replacements. So you're starting to see much more interest in in what I would describe as a much more innovative or much more sophisticated plan design that has different designs for either different conditions or different services. And I think VBIT fits in there. Uh, and, and certainly the interest is there. So the interest is there, but is it still kind of in the early stages? And are employers waiting sort of to see how VBID does with this Medicare Advantage pilot before they really put more stock into it? Well, I, you could argue that it's in the early stages simply because most employers haven't gone in that direction. And, and maybe they're waiting for evidence. Maybe they're waiting for technology to improve, to to be a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe they're trying to figure out how to do the communication strategies around it. To be honest, I'm not sure employers are that familiar with what's going on with Medicare and the VBIT demonstration. Uh, so I'm not sure that they're waiting for that, uh, to, you know, the results of that. Plus, it's a different population. Uh, so, you know, you may find different things happening with the older Medicare population than you would for a working population. And you mentioned the communication strategies. So what would be the a way to communicate this to people? It's not super easy to understand at first glance. There's got to be a lot that goes on to explain why one person can access a test for low or no cost sharing and another person in the same plan can't. Well, I think employers and their, you know, their partners, insurance companies and, and others that they work with need to really think about how do you communicate this to different populations, people with different conditions, uh, who's eligible for it, who's not, um, how's it affected by different plan designs. There's a lot going on. You know, there, there's a whole lot going on when it comes to communication these days. Uh, it's not as simple as mailing a brochure to somebody's home anymore. Uh, people create videos, they text their messages, they tweet their messages, they put things up on Facebook. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to communicate. And I think that's part of the challenge because there's so much information to communicate, uh, to workers and their families that you may have to make sure you have the right strategy to make sure people hear the message. But I think this is a message people would be receptive to if they're hearing that their, their call sharing is going down or disappearing, uh, because they have a certain condition like diabetes, uh, they'll be open to it. But you have to figure out how do you communicate that to people with diabetes in your population. Uh, they have to be identified. Great. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, be interviewed. Beth Forks is the president and CEO of the Virginia Center for Health Innovation, and she provided insight into what Virginia was doing to work with payers, employers, and providers to reduce the use of low-value care. So what is the problem that the United States is currently facing with low-value care? So when you look at the cost of health care, which is really the driver that got us involved, um, you know, folks, uh, whether it's employers or consumers that are paying a portion of health care, they are not convinced that they're getting good value for their dollar. Doesn't mean that we're spending too much or we might be spending um, too little, but they just don't feel that what they are buying is necessarily of high value. You know, they can point to administrative waste. Um, we, you know, we just heard earlier today about, you know, misdiagnosis. Um, you know, they feel that there are a lot of things that potentially um, they are getting that are much more expensive than they can imagine that they should be. 
Um, and so when we really dove into looking at the different causes of waste, or one of the ones that jumped out to us was this idea of low-value care. And that was prompted by uh, the Choosing Wisely campaign, which Choosing Wisely came out of the American Board for Internal Medicine, uh, their foundation, and, and Choosing Wisely asked providers to identify up to five tests or procedures, and this is the part that gets me, that they routinely do, that they know to be unnecessary or of low value. And across 80 different medical specialties now, they've all come up with five or more tests and procedures. So there's actually a list now of about 500 of those things. So to me, that was the lowest of the low-hanging fruit, right? This is stuff that providers are saying it's unnecessary, it might be harmful, and if we want to invest in more high-value care, then I would argue we really need to look at that low-value care piece and how do we stop paying for things that we don't need. And why is clinical nuance important in this discussion of reducing tests and procedures that are being identified as low value? Absolutely, because in most cases, not all, but in most, it's not the the specific test or procedure that is um, low or high value. It's how it's used. So the very same service, and I'll pick on pap smears, for example. You know, a pap smear can be life-saving for a woman. It can diagnose cervical cancer and save her life. Um, But... Um, evidence-based medicine has shown us and made a recommendation that for a healthy woman with no family history, no red flags within a certain age range, we don't need to have that pap smear done every year. So while you know it's important to make it, now the recommendation is once every three years. So it could be low value for someone, but for someone else, it could be life-saving. And so that's the clinical nuance concept. And we need to be sophisticated enough to make sure we are matching healthcare services with the patient and their particular risk factors and needs. And so how has Virginia been getting involved with addressing low-value care? Um, and what are, like, what are the state targeting? What are you working Sure. On? So, you know, we found kind of across all our stakeholders at the center, because we have health plans, health systems, consumers, safety net, businesses, um, providers, you know, all around the table, pharma, labs, um, that the one thing folks could agree on was, you know, we should be do if, the, if there is low value care in the system, we that's an easy, low hanging fruit for us to tackle together. Um, but when we wanted to tackle it and we saw the, you know, choosing wisely as well as things like U.S. Preventative Task Force has things they call grade D recommendations, which are things that you shouldn't be having. Um, we, you know, we found that pretty much everything that had been done was educational. It was encouraging better conversations between providers and consumers. But for me, I didn't want to launch an educational campaign until I knew what I was targeting. Um, And I needed data to be able to do that. So we really started in Virginia with how do we look at our data to get a sense of how much of this is happening, where is it happening, you know, are there specific areas, specific providers, specific regions of the state uh, that we should be targeting. And so our world work has so far has been, um, we were we're fortunate, we have an all-payer claims database in Virginia. Um, We were able to use that data and partner with Milliman, who created something called the Health Waste Calculator that incorporates that concept of clinical nuance that we just talked about. Um, 
It's really important that folks understand that when we look at claims data, it's not that we're looking just to see if A happened. It's if A and B and C and D over a three-year period of time, should you have had E? Um, so we were able to use that tool and our database to build a baseline just to start the conversation about, okay, here's what we're seeing. And in Virginia, you know, for we just looked at 2016 data, and I, I will tell you there's some frustration with time lag uh, in some of this data. And the biggest frustration, to be honest, is Medicare. We can get our Medicaid data and our commercial data within six months. Um, it's the Medicare data that takes a while. Um, but when we looked at 2016, just on 42 measures, so I mentioned there's about 500 things we could be looking at. The software has only been built out to look at the first 42 so far, because it is hard. When I talk about all this clinical nuance, it's hard to build out the coding for that and get it right. Um, but we saw um, $706 million a year in unnecessary care just in 42 measures. And so, and that is only on data from about 5 million of Virginia's 8 million uh, citizens. So it is a super conservative number, but it's a big number. And are there, um, aligning with that Choosing Wisely initiative, are there a top five for you of these low-value things? Sure. So we, um, and that's been a real lesson for me. So we learned, when I first started, when I first ran the data in 2014, um, and I would go out and I would talk to different groups about the data, um, and really in a mode of kind of a kick the tires. Like, here's what I'm getting. What do you think? How does this strike you? I used to lead with the top five by cost. That was the most interesting off the bat to me. One of the things that I've gotten some pushback on was um, that there are other factors I should be considering when we talk about a top five. Um, one was the potential harm. Some of these things are unnecessary, but they don't really harm the patient if it's done. Whereas some of the other measures, they actually, a exposure to radiation, for example, or they might yield, be likely to yield a false positive that leads to more testing and procedures. And so some are definitely more harmful than others. And that wasn't really captured if you just looked at the top five by cost. So um, I was strongly encouraged to, you know, in our um, rationalization of how we were going to prioritize to think about the harm factor. The other piece that I was encouraged to think about was what we call the low value index, which is how frequently do providers get that right or wrong? So there are certain procedures screening for vitamin D that most of the time that it's done, it shouldn't have been done. It has a very high low value index. There are other things like EKGs um, that show up as a potentially a top five in terms of cost because they're so expensive. But the truth is more than 90% of the time providers are getting it right. So, you know, that's where the provider community said to me, please don't pick the needles in the haystacks. You know, if you have to start with this, could you pick things that we do wrong a lot? Because behavior change will be easier for those things. So top five is more, you know, complicated um, than it sounds. Um, we were working on kind of creating our top five when the VBID Center has a, um, a task force now on low-value care that they convened with folks from across the nation. That group came up with a top five. They actually used Virginia's data um, to help guide their conversation because we're the only state at the time that had statewide data um, that they could even look at. Uh, subsequently, I know Washington State has run, used the waste calculator to run their data. Um, but so they created a, a top five. And, and they, the top five that that group um, selected that I was part of really focused very highly on let's pick 
nothing controversial out of the gate. You know, let's not pick something that providers are going to go squabble about how unnecessary um, it is. Let's pick things that, you know, are it's readily accessible to being measured by claims. Um, you know, let's pick things where the low value index is high, where folks are getting it wrong a lot of the time. And on the flip side of that, um, are you looking at high-value services yes, that can be promoted? absolutely. So in Virginia, when we started this work, you know, um, providers uh, said to me, you know, well, you're going to have less enthusiasm for your work if this just feels like a money grab, right? If this just feels both from a patient standpoint, like you're now telling consumers no, and you're now telling, you know, providers and health systems that you're doing too much that's wasteful and we want to take that back, where you would get more support and where we would do better as a commonwealth in advancing value, which is our ultimate goal, was if it was we want to reduce low-value care while we increase high-value care. And so what we've done in Virginia, we've been working on the creation of what we're calling the health value dashboard. And we've selected nine indicators, um, three that relate to reducing low-value care, three that relate to increasing high-value care, and three that relate to making sure we have the infrastructure in place to actually measure value in the Commonwealth. And so we really, so on the increasing high-value side, we have things like immunizations, uh, diabetic screenings, and cancer screenings are things that we want to make sure we're actually doing more of for the right patients. Clinically nuanced, but doing more of. And so you had mentioned the um, the all-payer claims database, and so I was wondering if you could just maybe explain what that is and how does having that database help to address the waste? Absolutely. So um, Virginia has an all-payer claims database where we, and in Virginia we're one of the few states where it's a voluntary all Paraclims database, most states that have done this, and I think it's 20 to 30 some states now have one in place. Most of those are mandatory where their um, legislature has mandated that um, claims data um, from Medicaid um, and the commercial market have to be submitted. Virginia, in the Virginia way, we don't like to like regulate things, so we made it voluntary um, for folks to participate, um, although we then did do have to do a little bit of strong arming in that our state employee health plan and our Medicaid program require any plan that wants to participate in either of those has to be part of the all-payer claims database. So we we did have, you know, we did have a little incentive there um, for folks to participate. So we, you know, we have about 60 to 65 percent of the commercial market claims in there. And as I said, all of Medicaid and now all of Medicare. And that has been, it's a significant resource for an organization like mine who has no financial skin in the game. I, I'm a neutral party. I can use that data set. I can start to ask questions on behalf of the state and then start to bring people together to, to try to improve it. I think it's critical um, to, to doing the type of work that we want to do. And so as a third party, how are you then working with the health systems in the state and the providers on the issue of low-value care and making it practice? In the Absolutely. Practice? So we are just, you know, we, as I mentioned, I've kind of been doing the road tour, if you will, of sharing data with folks. So um, we have a pilot now in Virginia with three of our federally qualified health centers. Um, they actually asked me um, first to run the low-value care information, but then actually we ran kind of a mock dashboard with all the measures that applied to them, they wanted to see how they were performing because they uh, wanted to use that information to build what their next improvement projects were going to be. 
We did that with the first three. We've actually had more when we presented that data, raise their hand and say, well, can you run our data as well? We can do that. All they have to do is give us their national provider numbers. We're able to then sort the data. Similarly, um, several of our large health systems are now asking for um, us to work with them, for them to see their um, specific information. We've always been able to share the information by region of the state, so we've divided the state into five regions so folks can see how their region is performing, and there are significant regional differences, um, some of which would surprise people. Uh, Northern Virginia, which is our most affluent uh, portion of the state, is actually the worst performer on low-value care. Um, and it may be that they have ready access and great insurance, and so that may explain. We're actually now just starting to work on the kind of more getting into the weeds of why. Like, you know, why are there differences? What accounts for some of the variation? Um, and uh, we're working with some folks at UCLA who are doing some research for us into kind of, you know, trends across years. We're finally, we have multiple years now of data that we can start um, to, to look at. But um, our approach has been to try to make the information available, to have now this dashboard, and then work with folks where they want to be. So it may be that our Medicaid program, when they look at the data, they may say, we're not so worried about reducing low-value care, per se. We're more concerned that we don't do as well as we should be doing on some of those high-value care measures in our population. And so our goal would be great. Let's work, you know, we're happy to try to help work with you on improving your performance around those high-value care measures out of the gate. A health system may look at their low-value care and say, you know, of these that you've identified, these two we're really concerned about our performance. We're going to work on these two. So we don't want to be so prescriptive that we try to tell everyone to work on the exact same project or initiative, but we did want to kind of narrow the field so at least it's a manageable set of initiatives that makes sense so that at the end of the day, we'll be able to look back and see, are we moving the needle in the Commonwealth of Virginia? Uh, so those are the questions I had. Is there anything you want to add that you wanted to talk about? No, we're just, you know, I, to me, the exciting part um, is that we actually have real actionable data uh, for folks. You know, we have a baseline now that we can look at. Um, and certainly, you know, we'll continue to talk about perfecting the data, changing the measurement. But, you know, I've been a big believer in not letting perfect be the enemy of good. You know, when we started this, I can't tell you how many times the conversation started with what I like to call 50 ways to deny the data, right? You know, folks would raise concerns. And at the end of the day, I would tell them, if that number if for Virginia isn't $706 million a year for these 42, and it's 650, we still have a problem that we can address. So, you know, we, we want the data to be good, but we also want to get to work on doing something about it. And that's what we're excited. That's the phase that we're now embarking on. Great. Thank you very Great. much for your time today. Absolutely. To read coverage of the panels from the VBID Summit, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes.